was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away. So last week we had, um, he had left Yeshua, you may call him Jesus, praying three lamentation prayers. Uh, we had the disciples failing to keep vigil three times. And in a few weeks, we will see Peter's three denials. Last week, we also saw the official end of the way discourse. Yeshua says, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And although the word used is nonkhodos, as it has been, the sense is clear enough. There will be no more teaching, no more preparation, no more anything until after the resurrection. We left off at a cliffhanger for the disciples last week on two things. Um, who are the sinners? The hum, excuse me, still, still congested. The hamartalos, the rasha in Hebrew, aka the wicked who do not get pardoned. And who is the betrayer? The paradidomi, the one who hands a man over to judgment and usually into the hands of Gentiles when the word is used in the prophets in the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures a few hundred years before um, Yeshua was born. Now, this week we're going to find out the answer to both of those questions in the first verse. So we're going to have to learn a bit about the temple establishment and the Sanhedrin next week. You know, um, and, you know, we'll have to learn even more next week. But we'll have to, um, we'll also have a bit of review about the oil press cave of Gethsemane, just in case you missed it, or forgot, or fell asleep while listening to me drone on. It happens, you know, hey, if those disciples can fall asleep with Yeshua nearby, then how am I going to stand a chance of keeping people awake? Ugh. All right. Good morning. Oh, it's morning here. I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have six years' worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. I know, I think most of my readers are adults. <laughs> and I have two channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com.
If you have kids, oh my goodness, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes from the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my reading resources, my study resources, can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. This week we are mostly in Mark 14, and we're coming close to the end. Remember, this is the longest chapter um, in the Gospel of Mark, and one of the longest chapters in the Bible period. Um, there's a lot to cover and it wouldn't have been good to break it up any other way. And remember, um, Bible books didn't usually have chapters and verses. Those are very modern. Those are like 600 years ago, I think, for verses, chapters. I can't remember. I would have to look it up. I always have to look it up. I mean, I write about it often enough, but I don't memorize those numbers. Anyway, so we're only going to read two names in this section the names of Yeshua and Judas. Um, okay, just a funny aside. There are folks who get really unhappy about the name Jesus because, you know, there's no J in Hebrew, which is true, but they won't hesitate to say Judah oftentimes. Um, but even if they say Yehuda, instead they will say Julius Caesar. Well, there was no J in Latin either. Just saying, you know, so truth is, if we refuse to pronounce the J ever, the world would get super confusing. The J isn't pagan, just modern, like indoor plumbing. And I am not ashamed to admit how fond I am of that. Uh, especially since we had a foot of snow dumped, you know, in the last week of December. And I would be tempted to hold it until spring if I had to go out in that. <laughs> So, um, as I told you last week, and, and I'm recording this in January, I, I always record things like, oh my gosh, a month or more ahead of time, because, you know, sometimes, you know, you get sick or you're studying, it takes you longer to study than, you know, normal. And then it's like, you're getting closer. Cause it's like, I got to come up with a broadcast. So anyway, yes, yeah, it's, it's January right now. But as I told you last week, there is ample scholarly and archaeological evidence to suggest that Yeshua and his disciples up to this point in the Gethsemane narrative were inside a very large cave that still exists on the Mount of Olives that was used as an olive press in the first century and was also used for oil storage. Nights this time of year in Jerusalem are cold and they can also be very damp. Sleeping in an orchard under the stars wouldn't be anyone's idea of a good time. You know, let me tell you, it's like, dang. Which is why they often stayed in Bethany for the night. An oil press cave would be relatively unused, except in the fall months. And so it would provide a, a dry, warm shelter out of the wind. As we'll see in the final verse this week, they couldn't have been out exposed to the elements. All right. So I believe that this happens as Yeshua and the three are exiting the cave into the orchard, which is an acceptable translation of both Corion, uh, which means place in Mark, you know, the place of Gethsemane and, uh, and Kepos, garden in John, and is in keeping with the locale and the description Gethsemane, which translates contextually to oil press in Hebrew or wine press, literally. 
Um, Verse 43, uh, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and elders. So with one fell swoop, a lot of Yeshua's predictions come to pass. Okay, He's betrayed by one of the twelve, no less, and his betrayal involves the leadership of Israel in the persons of chief priests, who constitute um, the temple elite establishment of the high priestly family and the permanent temple officials, uh, the scribes who served as legal retainers to the elite and the elders. These three together are often suggestive of the formal Sanhedrin council or at the very least the high priest's inner circle. The family of Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas and former high priest himself, along um, with his number of sons, also having served briefly in this position. They were very corrupt and um, collaborators with Rome. The high priesthood was bought and paid for in exchange for rights to a piece of the Temple Mount business action and the power that came with it. But make no mistake, uh, they were Roman collaborators getting rich off the backs of normal everyday Jews. And this wasn't every elder in Israel or every scribe, but the group of them together is representative of the whole of Jewish leadership in the rest of Yeshua. And there are people who also ask why Yeshua or why Judas, excuse me, should be considered guilty when he was, you know, like destined to do this. And it really is a complication, a complicated question. Excuse me. Judas had free will. There are no puppets in the Bible, okay? I don't know how Yahweh knows all, but he knows all, okay? Um, Judas was going to do this, but he also had the choice not to. Yahweh never makes anyone sin, but he does routinely use sinners throughout the scriptures when his people need to be disciplined. Look at Joshua, Judges, Kings, Chronicles, and the Prophets. Yahweh uses the wicked to discipline the rebellious. However, that doesn't mean he endorses their their actions or their excesses. Those whom Yahweh uses to punish his people always face wrath later on for how overboard they go in going after Israel. Not too different from James and John wanting to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans over, you know, a slight. Maybe the Samaritans deserve some discipline, but not genocide. They didn't understand what spirit they were of in wanting that kind of wrath on those people. Same with uh, those who wish we could call down fire from heaven on people who do whatever it is nowadays that offends us, you know. Um, Had a guy this morning saying he wanted to call down fire from heaven on me for teaching lies because I was talking about our need for meekness humility, and kindness. I personally thought it was a tad bit excessive for essentially agreeing with the Sermon on the Mount for, you know, whatever. (laughs) You know, a lot of folks are really threatened by any curtailing of their wanting vengeance for themselves instead of leaving it for the Lord as we are commanded. (laughs) I had to laugh. I was like, what do you want to do what? (laughs) Okay, Point proved. Um, now we also, so we see an armed crowd. Okay. And remember it said that these people were from 
the uh, leadership, not the leadership. And, uh, and this bespeaks Yeshua being considered a revolutionary feature, and he indeed was a political figure. He was threatening to the status quo, the recognized authorities, the temple elite. He disrespected Herod for divorcing his wife and marrying another woman, called him an adulterer. In the various Temple Mount controversies of chapter 11 and 12, he just outright messed with everyone. And the Romans, you have to understand, prized order above just about anything. They didn't like chaos. They didn't like to be challenged. They didn't like uncertainty. They bragged about the peace, justice, and order that Augustus Caesar brought to the empire. The fact that um, they sent so many armed men speaks to this idea that he is no longer simply considered an irritating miracle worker or teacher. Now he's become a threat. And during the Passover season, which all, which often saw uprisings under messianic pretenders, what there is much speculation about is the makeup of um, this crowd. And we're going to talk about that in the next verse. Um, verse 44 now the betrayer had given them a sign saying the one I will kiss is the man seize him and lead him away under guard now although a Judas is initially named from this point forward he is merely described as a betrayer and as far as honor shame dynamics goes being stripped of your name and instead referred to as paradidomi is insulting and dehumanizing Judas has ceased to be one of the twelve and has become an actor in a larger scheme of injustice. Judas is now nothing but a pawn of the Roman collaborators and barely worthy of further mention. He has given them a sign, which is the word Simon. And this is the only time it ever shows up in the New Testament. However, it shows up in Greek Isaiah three times, and when it does, it refers to a banner being raised up for the purpose of being a signal to peoples and nations. Which, if you've studied righteousness and justice um, language, that's very important. Um, in Greek Judges, it shows up twice, and both with respect to an ambush. And I find that really fascinating. So, what is the signal? Well, despite the full moon, it is dark. And so Judas can't just point. He's going to have to make physical contact in a big way. Judas decided on a kiss, but what kind of kiss are we talking about here? We know from writings in the ancient world that one kissed their superior on the hand or foot. You would kiss an equal on the cheek. Intimates, families and friends would kiss on the lips. And the text doesn't say how Judas kissed him. Movies go for the cheek, but it might very well have been on the hand. We just don't know. I think we just like to assume the worst case possible scenario, okay? Because it's, it's really impossible to make this any worse than it was, so why the heck not, right? A kiss in the ancient world was a sign of respect and or love. At the very least, you were honoring the other person. No one was going to kiss an inferior, but they would allow an inferior to kiss their hand or foot, depending how inferior, I suppose. I mean, you didn't touch another person's 
feet lightly because they were, you know, just nasty. I mean, the roads were like veritable cesspools in more ways than one. And that's how you offered guests the opportunity, or that's why you offered guests the opportunity to wash their feet. So a kiss was an act of honoring someone else, but Judas uses it in a hypocritical way resulting in the complete shaming of Yeshua, not only before the gathered crowd as a man who cannot command loyalty, even from his known inner circle, but of course, over the course of the night and the next day, as he's subjected to almost every humiliation you could inflict on a man in the ancient world. But we also have to recall that this was a betrayal of the ancient ethics of table fellowship, which forbade betrayal. This wasn't just a Jewish thing. Okay. This isn't Hebraic thinking this, you know, it was part of the culture of the ancient world. And that makes me want to bring up a point. Okay. Which I almost touched on. Uh, oftentimes people reading the Bible outside of the historical context will call certain things Hebraic thinking and presume that we should emulate whatever it is. Um, but very little of what we see in the Bible is intrinsically Hebraic. And besides, you know, things changed over time. What we see more often uh, is, you know, would be uh, properly designated as ancient Near Eastern thinking or Greco-Roman thinking. But folks who haven't adequately studied often miss that the Bible will describe things as they happened and not as our ideals for imitation. Mindsets, obviously, about men and women and children and slaves and um, foreigners and everything were more often just the product of the surrounding culture than what Yahweh was intending in the beginning. Certainly, Yahweh did not intend for the subjugation and ownership of one human being by another or divorce or whatever. You know, but as we talked about when we studied Mark chapter 10, Moses made allowances, and that's what Yeshua called these rulings. For, you know, uh, in light of their starting situation in the ancient Near Eastern brutality, you know, in order to make steps in the right direction based on the cultural reality, you can't change everything overnight. So although we never see reference to the laws of table fellowship in the ancient world within the Bible, we do know them from other sources, and we see them played out in the Bible. And unlike things like slavery and other forms of oppression, this isn't a bad system. It just isn't Hebraic in nature, but the way things were in the world. Now, Judas tells them he's going to kiss the man. He's not referring to Yeshua by name either, or by his status. And that is our third act of disrespect in one night. He then says to seize him and lead him away under guard. Now, seize is the word krateo. Oh, krateo. <laughs> Let's do that wrong. And is the same word, ironically, as the one used in Greek Isaiah to describe Yahweh taking the hand of the servant in Isaiah 42, 6 in the first servant song. Yahweh speaks in this verse of taking the servant by the hand and giving him as a covenant for the people of Israel as well as a light to the nations. Um, they, are, uh, they are also told to lead him away under guard, which tells us a bit about the composition of at least part of the mob. 
the previous verse said they were armed with clubs and sticks, which is how rioters were generally controlled by the Romans. Now, John actually claims that there were members of a Roman cohort here. Certainly not an entire cohort, as that was 600 men, and but certainly members of the cohort stationed in Jerusalem at the festivals. But John says that the temple guard was present, to which we can add auxiliary forces and private retainers or bodyguards of the elite. We do know that the servants of the high priest carried clubs from various writings. Um, Josephus mentions it in Antiquities 18.3.2 and Wars 2.9.4, and it's also recorded in the Babylonian Talmud, Pesachim 57a, and Tosefta Menachot um, 8.21. Verse 45. Oh, man. Excuse me. (laughs) And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Although Yeshua was repeatedly mocked and shamed over the course of the night and the next day, this was actually the first incident. All right. Judas comes boldly toward Yeshua greets him with the title rabbi, which we have seen before along with the title of teacher. Rabbi means my master. And added to the kiss, it couldn't possibly be any further from Judas's actual motivations. At this point, in the eyes of the armed crowd, Yeshua became an object of scorn and disdain because even one close enough to call him master and kiss him was disloyal. Yeshua, therefore, would be seen as either being unworthy of honor based on his character that, you know, the inner circle would know, right? And especially within the context of teacher-disciple relations, um, which were more sacred than the father and son relationship, even among the pagans. You know, after all, a father only gave you life, but a teacher, teacher gave you wisdom and learning, which was considered far more important in those times, all right? And uh, you see that in the Talmud too, um, where it's like your rabbi is, or your the scholar you study under, this was when things were a lot different. Your rabbi was more important than your father because all your father did was give you life. Your rabbi gave you Torah, all right? Now, this scene is also, or maybe it was Torah scholar. Maybe that's it. I can't remember. This scene is also reminiscent of the treacherous actions of Joab toward Amasa after Absalom passed over Job. Joab, not Joab, Job. Um, Absalom uh, passed over Joab for the job of commander over his short-lived army in his rebellion against his father. Uh, Joab had a dagger hidden and clasped Amasa as if to greet him with a kiss, and then killed him. Joab was generally a treacherous kind of guy. He really was. And uh, Verse 46. And they all, or they, they laid hands on him and seized him. Hands are really important in the Gospel of Mark. And, in fact, you can tell a lot of people by what they do, with their hands, which I've never taught on, but I'm working on it. Okay. They, do they heal or touch the unclean or feed or raise people up 
or are they obsessed with traditional washings or violent or unwilling to help those in need? You know, uh, in any event, the laying on of hands is an important show of character in the scriptures. And we learn a lot about a person based on how and what they do with their hands. Okay. Now we have a, well, we have about half a minute here and I don't want to get into the next verse because then we get into the lopping off of the, the, uh, the ear by Peter. I guess I should just talk about it. You know, a lot, this is more complicated than, than it appears on the surface. And that's why I love Bible context, but you know, it's, it takes a long time to learn and, but it's worth it. Anyway, we'll be back in a few minutes. Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of this week's Character in Context, uh, where we're talking about uh, the betrayal and kiss of Judas and the uh, abandoning of Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, by his disciples as prophesied. And we are on uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. I'm going to introduce you guys to whom I assume will uh, be a new scholar to you, as I've never mentioned her before. Her name's Paula Fredrickson from the Hebrew, Uni Hebrew University in Israel. She wrote a really nice article called um, Arms and the Man, which I will link in the transcript so you can read it where she makes a very interesting point and proposes an ingenious biblical and historical solution to, um, to what is a debate. Cause there is a debate about this sword because the word Makara is, um, also the translation of the Hebrew Hebrew word, Ma'achlet, um, which is what Abraham used for the Akeda the binding of Isaac in Greek Genesis. So although it can and usually does translate the word hereb, meaning sword, we have to consider the Passover context and how the author of Mark was writing this out very deliberately as the Passover being completely redefined in, in a final fulfillment in Yeshua. And the binding of Isaac, of course, and the substitution of the ram, which we talked about last week, is considered a foreshadowing of the first Passover because of the substitution of the ram for the firstborn son of Abraham. Yeah, I know about Ishmael, but for the purposes of inheritance rights, Isaac was credited as being Abraham's only son. Now, Fredrickson, she points all this out because of the often asked question, if they were carrying swords, if even a few of them were, why weren't they either arrested along with Yeshua or hunted down later by Roman authorities? And it is a very good question. Now, her premise is founded on a few historical knowns. One, although Rome was an occupying force, they really were as hands-off as possible. And 
they were only ever in Jerusalem for uprisings or festivals as crowd control. Pilate was known to um, only be in town when he absolutely had to be. Otherwise, he was in Caesarea Martima, uh, also known as Caesarea by the Sea, where he was headquartered. It was the priest and the temple establishment who really ran Jerusalem. Yeshua was more of a political threat to them than to Rome, as evidenced by the fact that the soldiers who were constantly on watch over the temple grounds from above at the fortress Antonia, which was joined to the northeastern corner of the temple mount by a stairway, um, as we see when the guards rushed in the riot to kill Paul in Acts 22, and in both Josephus's Antiquities and Wars. But despite the brouhaha, as Yeshua is challenging the establishment, they leave him entirely alone because they didn't see him as a threat to their own interests. That will change, and we will get to that in chapter 15. But if Yeshua in any way seemed to be the leader of a genuine armed rebellion, of a bunch of guys spending the night on the Mount of Olives during the Passover celebration, Rome would have been much more interested, and we know from John that there were at least some Roman guards there. But Yeshua wasn't that kind of Messiah, even if his followers had their hearts set on it. How about the sword? And here is where she makes her point and ties it to the Akeda, because... As part of the Passover, for every group of ten people, you know, male, female, and child included, um, there would be one lamb that needed to be slaughtered with a special sort of knife used for that purpose. And it wasn't like there were lockers, and so these valuable knives would be kept on the person of the traveler sheathed. We know that Yeshua was there with the now 11 plus, um, Plus, we don't know how many more other disciples, okay? We um, we know that two went to prepare the Passover, and so those two would have knives. Um, like many offerings, the offerer would actually perform the slitting of the throat of the animal, and as long as the priest caught the blood, it was a valid slaughter. In fact, there were so many slaughters being for performed that it was a necessity that the priest be relieved as much of the work as possible. And the Romans wouldn't have thought twice about 10% of the people at Passover walking around with such knives. They were only good for extremely close combat, and even with that, you'd have to catch another armed man by surprise. Certainly wouldn't be much use against a sword. So according to Fredrickson, um, the disconnect with the Passover theming occurred when the text was translated into Latin in the late 4th century, and Makara came gladius, all right? The classic gladiator sword. And once people have that picture in their mind, it's hard to consider anything even less formidable. Anyway, I thought this was really interesting, and I hope you will check out her article. Needless to say, if the Roman soldiers were alerted at this point to the possibility of Yeshua being an insurrectionist and not simply there to support the high priest, I believe they would have gone after Yeshua's followers as well, or at least the guy who drew the knife or sword or whatever. I mean, Rome was pretty brutal about crushing insurrections. All right, back to the verse. Um, one of those who stood by... 
And the author of John Says Peter, many, many years after the fact, probably many decades after the fact, many decades after the fact, um, once everyone involved, you know, had already died. And no one has any trouble believing it was Peter. No one, because, well, that's just the sort of thing we've come to expect from, you know, his pre-resurrection rashness. Okay? He, he could have easily drawn a sacrificial knife and gotten close enough to the servant of the high priest identified as Malchus in John to lop off his ear. It's like, oh, Peter, 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 Peter. And we have no account in Mark of the healing of the ear. Only Luke talks about Yeshua healing the ear. But this was an executable offense, cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest, who would likely be a Levite himself. All right? So we can see why no one would use names at this time. And it also gives some insight into why Peter would be extra horrified to be identified as having been there at the arrest. Verse 48. Um, oh, and by the way, the sword to only cut off someone's ear, that would take mad skills. Okay? Be much easier with just a knife. Um, I mean, I couldn't imagine taking off someone's ear without a sword unless you were, like, gouging their neck, too, really seriously. Uh, verse 48, And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? First thing of important I want you to note, if Peter was hoping to draw Yeshua into a violent confrontation, then he failed miserably. Yeshua is not like a zealot. Wanting insurrection against Rome, Yeshua didn't come to judge, but to uh, preach the kingdom of heaven, to heal the sick, feed the poor, teach the gospel of the kingdom, to do battle with the forces of Satan. But he didn't come to wage war in the flesh or against flesh. Yeshua came to do battle with sin and death on their own turf and to empty them out of their authority. Okay. Mark has always portrayed Yeshua as a mighty warrior, the Yahweh warrior of Isaiah, but not as the kind of warrior the Jews, you know, were expecting or even wanting. Everyone prefers violence to peace. The crowd came ready for a fight, but Yeshua adamantly refuses to engage. When he addresses the crowd, He's making a statement to everyone that there will be no violent sanction by himself. All right. Now, Yeshua flat out asked them why on earth. They're coming after him as though he is a lestes or a social bandit. It is debated if he could also be referring to an insurrectionist. He is most certainly unarmed as he sent others to prepare the Passover lambs for himself and his disciples. His disciples were all in the cave sleeping and one was even in his undergarments. You know, likely they were stumbling out of the cave as the crowd gathered groggily, wondering what on earth was happening and why Judas, who they trusted with the money bag, was with the crowd and not with them. Um, this group had obviously come ready to fight the lot of them. And Josephus talks quite a bit about social banditry of that time, and later as men who had lost their lands due to heavy taxation and poverty were harassing the wealthy classes. 
When Josephus uses the word lestes, he's referring to these sorts of Robin Hood types. In essence, um, Yeshua is shaming them by pointing out that they've come after a bunny rabbit with a howitzer. He will not lift a finger against them, and they never had any reason to suspect otherwise. He had never given them any reason to suspect otherwise. Um, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Um, you know, in other words, if I was really being subversive, you would have taken me on the spot as I was teaching in the temple courtyard. You would never have allowed me to defile holy ground um, through actual blasphemy or anything else that would have encroached upon the holiness of that space. You know, but you didn't. You waited until everyone was inebriated and sleepy from having eaten well. And it's a harsh, really shaming sort of rebuke. Yeshua knows that they're behaving in a dishonest and cowardly manner because they couldn't act in the open. Yeshua was well thought of at this point by everyone except the elites whom he had condemned and shamed in the temple controversies. You know, every single controversy was met with silence from the accused because they could not argue with him. To even do so would be to validate the attack and they couldn't afford the loss of honor that uh, that would entail. And I have to say that if someone was going to be stirring up insurrection, um, it's very doubtful they would have done it on the Temple Mount. They would have done it in the city. They would have done it uh, probably uh, at the gates to the city, and especially um, at the gate that the uh, Galilean pilgrims would have taken into the sea. All they would have had to do is stay there and, and incite people, but they didn't. All right. Uh, Yeshua says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. That word translated fulfilled is plero, and it has the sense of something being satisfied or filled up, but it is also often used as a word in scriptures about the ordination of priests. In other words, something is being made whole and finding completeness in some way. Verse 50, and they all left him and fled. Um, on cue, not only scripture, but Yeshua's interpretation of it was fulfilled. We covered that last week, but let's take another look at Zechariah 13.7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. If you recall the context, this was spoken earlier in that chapter, on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And this will happen, of course, on this same day when Yeshua's side is pierced and water and blood pour out, like the watered-down wine served at the Seder's. Um, also like the water and wine poured out together... Um, at the, at the water pouring ceremony, all right? But also do not forget in the very next chapter, there is vindication and victory and they all 
ran. And as far as next chapter, I'm talking about Zechariah chapter 14, not, um, not Mark chapter 15. Gotta wait for chapter 16 for that. But, um, and they, uh, they all ran except one, as we will see, but we shouldn't scoff at them as cowards because we would have done the same thing, I imagine. As Yeshua told the three, the spirit, the intention is willing, but the flesh is weak. None of us can control how we will sp- respond in the moment of crisis. Our intentions are always admirable, at least in our own minds, and brave. But uh, our follow-through is, is another story. I just can't make uh, grandiose predictions about my own behavior anymore. You know, I've learned my lesson because I can be an absolute idiot. And they had advantages that we don't have. They were with him for a long time, day and night, and heard him teach firsthand and saw the miracles and even worked miracles themselves. But this was pre-cross and pre-resurrection and pre-Pentecost. There was no new creation kingdom existence. Not yet. Yeshua knew that. Yes, they drank the wine of the new covenant. Yes, they ate the broken bread of his body. Yes, they swore oaths. But they were kids, confronted by the highest authorities in their world, and Yeshua was not taking up arms to defend himself or them. I mean, now, finally, they see the truth that he will not be the vengeful, violent, conquering Messiah that they've been hoping for, praying for, I imagine, and... and I imagine that the moment was crushing in more ways than we can possibly imagine. I mean, our generation gets upset if their presidential candidate doesn't win. I mean, I actually saw people predicting a rapture, which I find absolutely no support of in scripture. Take it in context. Um, I saw people predicting a rapture last January, January 2021, because they proclaimed that God would never allow Biden to be president over his people. Huh. Strange. Um, he doesn't seem to care about people who are a whole lot more faithful than us being, you know, they're under the thumb of the communist leaders in Asia and the Shiite Muslims and so many other groups who are actually torturing Christians. But yeah, Biden's the cause for a rapture. Dang. I mean, it's like people don't have any perspective of what people are dealing with outside of this country who are Christians. And if they are expected to endure, we can put up with four years of Biden, okay? I mean, seriously, come on. Now, verse 51, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. Now, this young man is a bit different. He actually sticks around and follows after the group. And that's pretty brave, I've got to say. Everyone else is gone, and he came out of the oil press cave wearing only his undies. Um, leaving the cloak he was sleeping on, and, um, and in, he was also sleeping in it, uh, back in the cave. He, he got up too quickly, alright? And, um, him, they, uh, and he, they actually grab and try to apprehend. Now, I think it's obvious that he wasn't armed like Peter was, because all he had on was his undergarments. And to his credit, he doesn't bolt until he's actually physically in danger. And I, you know what? Good job, guy. Uh, verse 52. 
but he left the linen cloth and went ran away naked. Uh, we talked about this last week, and I haven't seen this in a commentary anywhere. It just occurred to me, but I find it interesting. This account of leaving behind a linen cloth, especially if a cave is involved, because, you know, that would seem to foreshadow Yeshua leaving behind his linen burial cloths, as recorded by John, and leaving behind an otherwise empty cave. Um, maybe it's just me? And this is some sort of fanciful bit of wishful thinking? I mean, you know, after all, Yeshua didn't run away, nor was he naked, but it's a very Jewish thing to do with even less to go on. Yeshua leaves the cave, different cave, clothed in dazzling white and triumphant, totally vindicated of the charges against him um, and all of his prophecies about himself fulfilled. And his disciples leave the cave um, right before they confirm all that was said against them at the Seder, that one would betray him, you know, one of the twelve, and that they would all run away and abandon him. You know what? I'm actually liking this more and more the more I think about it, okay? Because, again, it's contrasting the disciples as faithless Israel pre-resurrection with Yeshua, the faithful suffering servant, the arm of the Lord, the Yahweh warrior who is perfectly obedient and who fulfills the calling and commission of Israel in the world to bring both Israel and the nations to the worship of Yahweh. So the king, the gospel of the kingdom... The good news of the encroaching reign of Yahweh over the earth will go out to the four corners through the inaugural work of Yeshua, the salvific work of the cross. The greater exodus that will free not only just one people, you know, like the original exodus, um, only free the children of Abraham plus, you know, whoever decided to uh, leave Egypt with them, the mixed multitude. Um, but the greater exodus will free not just one people, but all nations from the Pharaoh of sin and death. And I, I, dang, I like that. I really do like it. Um, even if it's totally bogus. I mean, not that the story is bogus, but that my, my take on it is, you know, bogus. Anyway, you know, we all have our little things that we look in there and we go, oh, you know, and say, well, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. Maybe I, maybe I've stretched it too far. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> I'm babbling. We have two or three or four. I think we have, do we have four or five teachings left in Mark 14? And I'm not sure yet because there's a lot of background to cover next week, you know, explaining about the Sanhedrin and if the gathering at Annas's house was a true Sanhedrin or just his cronies forming a bait den, um, which would have led which would have had Sanhedrin members sympathetic to the high priestly family and, you know, the rest of all, rest of the temple establishment, you know, on it, um, ensuring a verdict, you know, people who owed their wealth and authority to Annas and to Rome. Scholars have uh, some really interesting things to say, and we're going to debate whether or not it was as much of a kangaroo court, you know, a fixed trial as some have made it out to be, or if they did actually follow some procedures correctly, honestly, it's going to be, um, well, it's going to be quite the mixed bag. And there's a lot to cover. 
if you have a commentary on Mishnah Tractate Sanhedrin, and so that would be the Gahadi, the JPS, the Art Scroll, those are all good commentaries, you might want to read that to get some ideas of what they believed were the standard courtroom procedures almost um, 200 years earlier when the trial took place. But make sure you don't just read a Mishnah. Read it with a commentary. Because um, the Mishnah was a... I call it an Ivy League scholarly intellectual, you know, document not meant for duffers like you and me who aren't already intimately connected with um, with what was going on in the Jewish world then. Um, a lot of times they would say this or that, and it would be like in shorthand. And if you don't understand the background, you're going to come to the wrong conclusions. I mean, I do. And that's why you need a commentary. It's really important. Then, I mean, you can um, you can find the Mishnah on safaria.org and, and things like that. Um, and you can find the uh, the Gemara, which is the um, Talmudic commentary on the Mishnah. So, anyway, um, yeah, there are there are options. But if you really want to study this sort of thing in in detail, you need a commentary. And, and even then, I'm going to tell you that um, it wasn't written during the first century. It was written like almost 200 years after these events. And so a lot of its opinions, they didn't know. They were living in an entirely different place in an entirely different way. And um, it may be that a lot of stuff that was in the mission is ideals, idealistic. Could be. Anyway, okay, so Peter's denial. Um, I think we're going to do that in uh, three weeks. And... I hope I've given you some food for thought as to why he might have been more eager to deny Yeshua, even after loving him enough to show up.